So we were on Romans 5, and I think we did not quite finish the chapter. And uh, for Oh, by the way, let me introduce uh, Sydney and Darwin Johnston. Uh, you still work at TLC, or are you changing? Counseling Center. Counseling Center now. Uh, Sydney is now at the Counseling Center. I don't know what you do, Darwin. Um, I just recently took over the Chevron, the shop at the Chevron station from Milton Rivera. Oh. And I also still work up at the college at facilities as a mechanic up there. Okay. Well, you're doing two jobs. All the more reason to conquer Lyme. <laughs> Can you handle it otherwise? And so this is Katrina and David Blue. Uh, Katrina is a colleague of mine here in the department, and David uh, is an anesthesiologist for kind of the area. <laughs> you travel, well, right, from the, hospital the to hospital? covers a number of hospitals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then... Um, he knows me very well. It, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, in case... In case I, I have him on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> this is Adriano. Uh, and... Uh, oh, yes. He's a he's a theology major here at PUC, hoping to go into ministry. And uh, Ed Krauss is a, one of our counselors at the counseling center, and is retired. You wouldn't know it, but he is. I've seen him a couple of times. Yeah. All right, so we're ready for Romans five. I think we got down. Did we get past fourteen? Does anybody remember? We were dealing with 12 to 19. 12 to 19. 12 to 19. We did 12 to 19. Right. Okay, so let's start with 18 so that we get the, the whole paragraph here. And, Sydney, would you read for us verses 18 to 21? A new Living Translation. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in external life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Any observations or thoughts while you're thinking? The term brought into a right relationship with God is their interpretation of justification. And I find that interesting because the more <laughs> modern versions, with the exception of the Common English Bible, which is one of the more recent ones, have really uh, gone with people like N.T. Wright, who is, a, I think, a Princeton scholar. I'm not New Testament, so I forget these From things. Durham in England. Is Durham in England? No, he was N. the bishop. Uh, oh, okay. Durham. But he stepped down from that a few years ago. Okay. 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 So um, N.T. Wright has done extensive work with Romans, and along with some other scholars, have come to the conclusion that we have tended to read Romans too much through a Lutheran model, uh, mm -hmm. through Martin Luther's eyes, rather than through the original uh, eyes of, of Paul's time and day and what he's really talking about. 
And so that's why you see that change uh, into a brought into re- right relationship. I think the first translation to go that route was the Common English, I mean, the, not the Common English Bible, the Today's English Bible, or Today's English Version, that uh, translated Dekai O'O, which, or, or De, yeah, Dekai, well, that cluster of Deek words, it translated uh, the word for justification or the word to justify is to set right. In other words, bring into a right relationship. And what is the right relationship of Paul and from our study? What was the righteousness that God commanded in Abraham? It's faith. Faith, trust. The kind of right, right relationship God wants is trust. Do you see any issue with one man's disobedience? Made many, many were made sinner. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Both sides are really powerful. Mm-hmm. One act. Mm-hmm. That was something I had a hard time with for a, for a really long time. Uh, and, and he talks about it here, and then there are other places where he brings up the same kind of concept. Um, and it just, it, you know, the thing that just kind of grated on me was like, well, I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with this. How come I, you know... I'm stuck with uh, with it, but um, one thing that helped me a lot was um, oh, a number of years ago. I was reading through some some of the Greek philosophy, and um, this this whole idea of they were trying to figure out how come even little kids can tell instantly that this is a dog or this is a cat and then you know and even if and they can tell that a chihuahua and a saint bernard are both dogs um and they don't mistake uh a, a persian cat for being in that same thing you know what what is the what is it about and so they came up with this idea that there was this kind of a celestial template um that all all dogs are uh, somehow connected with this model of dogness that um, that um, yeah and uh, and that that was how we were able to recognize because we can see into to the original template through this and, and that's what we're picking up on um, and so when I apply that to this model that you know up till up till Jesus it's like that Adam was that template and that all of us are traced back to that. But then when Jesus came, all of a sudden, now we have an option. We can shift um, who are referred, you know, what are the the, the source of who we are mm-hmm. is. Um, so, so and that, that fits very much with Paul and, and Jesus being the second Adam, that he... He undid what the first Adam did. That changed everything. That does yeah. that is helpful. In my mind, see, that doesn't explain the power and the impact of that, though. It gives you a frame of reference. I would kind of like that idea, but it doesn't give me uh, a sense of that extreme power that went from Adam all the way down to now. And Isn't it the power of heredity? It could be heredity or... That is in our DNA. I mean, we epigenetics. 
really I find helpful in understanding that um, you have this little, almost like the black box <laughs> inside of you, organizing everything and, and controlling everything. You mess with that black box and you're going to have it, this, this hand down change from generation to generation. Right. And, and we now know that we have so much more power over our genes than we ever thought we had before. But then how do you explain it? Christ is a black box, it's got the correct... Well, See, in my mind, I think it's more as a battle of the war, the original war going on. But where, does, where is the battle fought? But the battle fought the location. in all of us. Right, but where in all of us? Where's that black box? In our minds. In our minds. And so... Um, but it's a battle, see, it's we, not just a DNA that I don't have any choice. We have tended to minimize the plan of salvation as a legal construct, a legal construct. But that's inadequate to deal with the whole of, of what it is. It's not just an act. It's not just... Um, I'm going to go to the Old Testament for this. Uh, it's, it's not just a single instant that things were changed. It's something that Jesus brought into the world that has permeated the world and, and allowed, I think, the Holy Spirit freer access to us. And, and so, um, Isaiah 53, verse 11, Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. I should have known better. I should have brought my Greek news and my Hebrew Bible. I think one way of translating this is that he, by his knowledge, he will make many righteous. And that fits with Jesus' own words in his prayer to his Father. This well, is eternal life. I'm saying. It's not, this is a dynamic, moving entity. It's not just concrete things like DNAs or, uh, you know, one for all and all for one. I mean, it doesn't kind of, it's really a dynamic process going on. It's a, it's a battle, it's a war going on. It's a war over our minds, over what, how we think about God and how, whether or not we trust Him. Right. And then Christ, by His accomplishment, He brings a different sort of model to us, like an option. Right. And that option, I, I believe, too, is the Holy Spirit really has more access. But I don't think God has an access for us unless we want the access. Right. So we have to ask. So this is the dynamic process, not just built into our DNA. To me, that's more like the legal system. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't see it that way at all. I see it as very relational. Mm. Because... DNA relational? Di well, and DNA is actually much more dynamic than we ever thought. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, I, I think so. I, and I, I think the, the very fact that we can change our DNA and, and certainly change the, gen, the next generation or the third generation more likely mm -hmm. because we are more like our grandparents than we are our parents. Uh, so what our grandparents decide to do affects us more than what our parents decide to do. But our parents' decision affects our children. Uh, so a child can uh, be obese and have pre, uh, diabetes because of dietary choices their grandparents made. To me, that's all rela about relationship and, and the dynamic of how we can affect change. 
I don't, but but I'm not here to argue that point. I, the the main thing I think it's important to us to see is the relational model in terms of understanding the plan of salvation. And one thing that I was just thinking about as we're sitting here, and it's not a perfect thing, but also I think may address kind of the at least a part of what you were bringing up. Um, I was just thinking about if a, a married couple who are U.S. citizens move anywhere in the world and have a child, that child is a U.S. citizen regardless. Uh, and uh, there are people who have found out as adults that they were U.S. citizens that had no idea um, because of just that. In fact, even if just one of the parents is a U.S. Mm-hmm. citizen, it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be both. But if those people had left the country and then renounced their citizenship and then had a child. That child is not a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a sense, Adam and Eve, with that act, renounced their citizenship in God's kingdom. And as a result, all of their children are not just de facto um, well, and that that isn't just in a in a legal sense. That's mm-hmm. in a very real sense because right. what their renunciation affected them, and and therefore uh, created a whole different right and paradigm for us. Uh, just to complicate things. Well, if we go to Romans eight, then we go into the whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So we have this picture of wonderful grace, God's prevenient grace, which is Ellen White's preference for the term. God's grace is real as the air that we breathe, mm-hmm. that was poured out with Pentecost, with Christ, with the coming of the Spirit, right? And then we also have the other idea that God has called us and predestined us as well. Mm-hmm. So these two images uh, point to the universality of God's love and His calling, uh, but also his understanding that he knows how we will respond. Mm-hmm. But his his goal is to conform us all. I mean, he predestined us all, but some of us choose not to. Yeah, we're going to have to wrestle with Romans 9 before we're through. I just taught Romans in a week, this week, in my letters of Paul. That was daunting. Yeah, Romans in a week. Wow. So, um, anything else in this passage that... The one thing that a few years ago uh, hit me, and it's uh, it's partially in this passage and also more, you kind of pick it up through the whole chapter, and you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit at the beginning, um, and that is, it gave me a whole different idea of what God's righteousness actually is, and um, that as you read through here, it comes out with this idea that what makes God righteous is the fact that you know, he made us perfect, this perfect world, perfect people, everything, and we've screwed it up. Uh, and, and said, yeah, thanks, but you know, we're going to do things our way. And he was under no obligation to fix things. He could have very simply just walked away at that point. Now, if he completely disassociated himself with us, then we would have ceased to exist, but nonetheless. But he didn't, and we weren't in a position to be able to fix the problem either. 
and in, in many cases didn't even recognize the extent of what the problem was. And yet, God did what was necessary, paying a price that we'll never really understand to make it possible to then rectify this relationship um, and to make it possible to have a relationship with him again. Um, and that that is what makes him righteous. It was his, not only his ability and desire, but the fact that he did what was necessary to be able to restore righteousness, even though it wasn't his fault that there was a problem. And then, but then when I look forward and then see where we are being called to being righteous, all of a sudden, that doesn't mean, okay, well, being righteous just means going to church every Sabbath, or that I paid my tithe, or that I, you know, have these checkoffs on the Ten Commandments or whatever. It's, to what extent am I willing to, to sacrifice myself to help restore relationship um, in the relationships that I have with each other, uh, with other people, um, my uh, relationship, or even to help someone else who is in their relationship between them and God, or, you know, whatever. To what extent am I willing to say, that's not my problem, Well, but if I am in a position to be able to do something, then it seems like that's what I'm being called to do if I'm truly going to be modeling myself after the righteousness that God has demonstrated. Yeah, there's there's something about this uh, engendering relationships with, with other people and with God with us. Uh, he did that, it seems to me, by demonstrating his trustworthiness mm-hmm. because it was, the issue really had, was boiled down to trust. We didn't trust him anymore. Right. And and when you don't trust someone, you're going to do it your own way. Uh, save yourself. So by demonstrating his trustworthiness and bringing us to trust, he then engenders in us the desire to be trustworthy people. And and being trustworthy people means that we're going to try to restore other people's relationships. Uh, just another way of saying what you were saying. Yeah, thank you. Anything else? I like that I like that concept of righteousness. Because I think without it a lot of Paul is not understandable. Okay, let's move. I I'm hesitant to start in chapter 6 simply because to me this is a very powerful unit and we need all of it put together. But we'll go ahead and start today and then we can maybe move back next week and and uh remind ourselves of what we read today. Actually, the meat of it doesn't start till 15 anyway. So, uh, Darwin, would you read verses 1 to 4, please? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. It's almost like he's suddenly jumping into another topic, doesn't he? Yes. But his question is, should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? So, la la la, we have grace, let's just go on sinning. 
and he's got a favor. Yeah, <laughs> and he's going to uh, hit this really hard in this chapter. Uh, that there are consequences to living that way. You think of the context. Paul was hated. He was. Uh, People were trying to assassinate him. His life was not safe. He didn't know if he was going to get to Rome. And so he sends this letter to the Roman Jesus followers uh, because if he was killed beforehand, right, that at least they heard the message that he wanted to share. And it goes back to why he wrote the letter. Mm-hmm. But after writing Galatians, Galatians, he wrote such an angry letter Right, because the Judaizers were trying to impose circumcision, the sign of keeping the law. And so now uh, Paul is being uh, accused of being a libertine, right? Disregarding Mm -hmm. the law, throwing it away. And so Romans comes back. It's a much more tempered letter. It's deeper. It's not as doesn't have that angry tone that Galatians does. But he comes back and shows what the value is in the Jewish heritage. Right, and he wants to place the law in the right connection to faith in God. Right, so mm-hmm. he wants to temper that. So he keeps moving through, but his point is to keep coming back and addressing well, what is the place of the law. Right, mm-hmm. and so this is the new section that he's entering into. Uh, he wants to say, no, we need to establish the law. Right, because his reputation is mm-hmm. for having done away with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and to the Judaizers, that's just their, their trump card against him. See, you're doing away with the law now. So, he says, by no means, how can one who died to sin go on living in it? So, as you have said, chapter 6, we get into God's design law. Mm-hmm. So, how do we read this verse 4? Is he paying a legal penalty to appease God's wrath? Or do we read that in a different concept? Well, I don't see how you could be legally buried with him by baptism. I think that's experiential. Well, that's what I think too. But I think a lot of people read that. It, he's going. Paul's going to talk about Jesus died to save our sins. I'm going to legal payment. I'm going to pull a little bit of John into Paul. Good. I know those two have not walked in harmony in people's minds, but I mean, I'm going to try to to bring a little bit of John in. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born from above. And Nicodemus thought he said, you must be born again. You, know, you want to know that the Greek can mean both ways. So if that's the case, it would be born from above, then we need new parents. Our old parents messed up. They were not capable of, of giving us an accurate picture of God, of winning us to trust in God. We need a birth from above. We need God as our parent. And, and Paul's later going to talk about adoption in chapter 8. So if we're buried by him in baptism, we buried our old life with the old template, with the old parents in the waters. That all has died, and now we're resurrected to new life. And we have new parents, a new template, a whole new set. And, and having experienced this in my own life, you know, I, I, I don't really want to tell my conversion experience one more time, <laughs> because I've told it so many times in, in this class, but 
having experienced that, I know how experiential that is. Because two weeks before my conversion, I was sitting in a camp meeting criticizing everybody in my purview uh, to my best friend. We were sitting there, and I was picking on this person and that person and, and the other person. Uh, her dress was too short. <laughs> this was back in the 70s. <laughs> her dress was too short. His beard was too scruffy. His hair was too long. Uh, <laughs> I was just going down the list of everybody and making making fun, make, not making fun, but, but finding fault. I had my conversion experience about two or three weeks later. Suddenly I loved the whole world. The old had gone, the new had come, and I was no longer criticizing anybody except myself. And in fact, I wrote a letter to all my classmates that I felt I had misrepresented God to as a child. I was very legalistic as a child and very condemnatory of other people's behavior. I thought that was my, re my requirement. If I was going to be saved, I had to tell other people what's wrong with them. <laughs> and a gift. <laughs> <laughs> to help <laughs> Your spiritual gift. So I wrote a letter apologizing for all of that. And I said, I really didn't. I really made God look bad to you. And, and this is not who God... God would never treat you the way I treated you. They wrote back in shock. We always thought you were in love with Jesus. <laughs> well, you didn't know my heart, obviously. And in that community, I probably just blended in. But <laughs> the community was very critical. <laughs> Uh, but your middle name is Saul. Was it Sauline? Yeah, it was Sauline. <laughs> now Pauline. <laughs> I hope. Yeah. I I have experienced this. So to me, it is absolutely has nothing to do with with the legal change. It has everything to do with the heart change, with really dying to to sin, really dying to self, which I understand to be in so much bigger terms now. As, as really having that new template and the new, the, the new life that we can have in Jesus that is full of love. I think your story here and then also uh, just kind of highlights it a bit of what we were talking about earlier and then also in this conflict that's going on between where the law fits in all of this, the, at, the, at the base of that it revolves around what your understanding of what the law is, um, and if for when you're on the legalistic side of things, um, then you see this as being a somewhat arbitrary list of requirements that God has put together, and said, "Okay, if you can jump through all these hoops, then I'm waiting at the other end of it, and then you know, and then if you can make it through here, then we have a chance," um, as opposed to when this whole thing is based on relationship, then the um, the Ten Commandments are a a list of well, when you love somebody, this is how you interact with them, um, and that 
and that it's um, they're you know guidelines, they're guardrails to keep you from going off. You know when you're driving up and down to the valley floor, and there's you know, this drop off. Is is well the you've got this guardrail here to kind of keep you from going too far off because bad things happen when you go beyond that. And so God is saying, you know, that these are the things that just that damage relationships. And so don't do that. Um, and uh, and so it's not about whether I love you or not. It's I don't want to see you d- damage anybody's, you know, the relationship with your with your spouse, with your friends, with me, with, you know, whomever. Um, and that that puts things in a whole different view as to where the law fits in all this. And also, um, I think it's interesting, um, I, I don't think he came up with this, but, um, oh, come on, think what's the name, and, uh, it, Andrews, the, uh, wrote The Flame of Yahweh. Um, Dick Davidson. Yes. Anyway, he, um was talking, I heard him talking about the, the Ten Commandments and that if you go to the um, the original Hebrew, that the, the grammar of it can be translated two ways. One is they can be as thou shalt not do this, but it can easily just be translated as a promise saying mm-hmm. when we live in relationship, yeah. you won't do this. Um, and, and if you think about the prologue, and, and now I'm borrowing from Brueggemann, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is how you are to live as free people. This is what you will do as free people. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're no longer in a slave relationship, now you have a free relationship. You can love one another freely. Right, and this is what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When, when people actually live in freedom as opposed to, here's another set of rules. It, instead of being Pharaoh's rules, now it's my rules. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Paul's going to come to this uh, at the end of Romans, isn't he? Uh, is it Romans thirteen, fourteen, where he says, "Love does no harm to a neighbor; therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law." And and the Ten Commandments are about doing no harm. So, by no means, how, we aren't going to live in sin any longer. How can we who died to sin go on living? In it? We have been baptized by his death. I think the most beautiful baptism I ever saw was done by uh, my predecessor, one of my predecessors here in the department, Ginger Harwood, when she baptized a student in the baptismal tank at the PUC church. She very carefully put the student under the water and then very slowly brought the student up, and just as there was still water over her face, she held her just a second. It was like you were seeing what Paul's talking about here, Mm -hmm. really happening. I mean, the dunking that we do, and I'll admit I've been guilty um, because of my bad back. I usually tell my baptismal candidates that they must bend their knees and bring them help bring themselves up <laughs> because I'll leave them the, the push, you know, to get started, but they've got to do the work. Uh, it didn't happen the last time, so my back suffered a little. But I, we tend to go out so fast. And, and part of that is we don't want to torture our candidates <laughs> under the water, hold them down there too long. But, but I think we lose the meaning and the significance of baptism, and, and it's... It's, it's, it's such a beautiful metaphor 
for uh, this this losing that old template and coming to the new one. Then you could say new paradigm, because there is a paradigm of sin that has we have worked with for too long. Okay, I think we can actually read Ed. Would you read um, verses five to eleven? Mm-hmm. For if you have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also, so we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and that henceforth we shall not survive, serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto his sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is not something we can manipulate or control or engender, right? And I see him, as, as you were reading this, Ed, I was hearing that prologue of the Ten Commandments because he talks about no longer being enslaved to sin. False sin as a slave master. It almost makes me wonder if he doesn't see the legalism of the Judaizers as the heart of sin and what it is. Because if there was anything that enslaved people, it was this attempting to keep the law in their own works and and viewing everything through that legal paradigm. And I wonder if if he doesn't see that as kind of the heart of sin. Um, If you're seeing all of this as being about relationship, then what the definition of what sin is then ultimately ends up being anything that destroys relationships. Right. And so if that mindset is is clearly the fruit of that is it's it's alienating them from each other and it's alienating them from God. So then yes, it is sin. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That's putting it in the paradigm I think Paul's trying to lead us. Well, um, and then if any of the priesthood had read this letter and got copies of it that would really freak them out it seems to me it's totally against the concept of Mesopotamia and Babylon and a lot of the way they saw it this is is a huge change it is a huge change and it reminds me of when I tried to teach this to some students my first few years of teaching not here at PUC but far far away this message I got from the theology majors I try to teach this to is we can't understand what you're talking about. And I think that would be their, probably their reaction. Mm -hmm. They would just say, Paul, you're not making any sense. We don't know what you're talking about. Because of their understanding of the law. Because when you look, when you do this kind of legal preoccupation, you have a very narrow way of looking at things. And anything out here <laughs> that's trying to lead you into a different path, you, you can't grasp it, can't see it. That's why Adventists had such a 
um, difficult time with righteousness by faith. Yeah, we had that tunnel vision. Very definitely. Unfortunately, it's not necessarily completely past tense. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't tell anybody, right? <laughs> oh, dear. So, whoever has died is freed from sin. How does that work with the slave model? Well, who's going to make payment? You're a slave, you got a payment, right? And if you're a, and if you're a slave, you have to work. You have to be alive. If you die to slavery, you're free. It's twenty-four-seven. Yeah. No Sabbath. And you think you think about how anti-Babylonian this is, since you mentioned Babylonian. Human beings were created to be slaves of the gods. That's the Babylonian model. And where did the Jews get their preoccupation of not to do this and not to do that and the other thing on the Sabbath? Just read the Babylonian Talmud. The list is long and intense and detailed to the core. Um, if you put something in the oven before sundown, you cannot take it out after Sabbath. <laughs> after Sabbath. fire out. You could, put, yeah. <laughs> you better. Your bread would burn. But um, you know, you know, it, it was just meticulous the way they did this, and it's all on the principle of expansionism, which is exactly what Babylonian law was built on: expansionism. Try to figure out every case, single case that you could apply Possible. to this. It was also built on their umi lamuti, their evil days where they were taboo days, where you did not do certain things in order not to anger the gods. So they started keeping Sabbath like that. And on top of that, Sabbath, Shabbat. One thing so appealing about the law is that as humans, we can figure out ways to get around the law and still do keep the law. We can manipulate right. and control. Right. That's our goal. As boy, I worked for Western Union and... Uh, when I'd have to deliver a letter if it was on the Sabbath, the Jewish household that had me open and read it. So they got around all that. Cause they wanted right, to you had the Gentiles do it. Right. See, what? this is why Jesus was so radical in the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about the law, he says, what about your thoughts? Can you control your thoughts? And they're like, no, 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 don't go there. Mm -hmm. this, we, can't, we can't manipulate our own thoughts. And that was to say, okay, you can't, then this is only with God this is possible. And I think that the problem we have of getting from legalism to the spirit, I'll just put it that way, from the law to the spirit of grace, is we freak out at the thought, this isn't something we control. This isn't something we contrive. This isn't something we can manipulate. This isn't something we can circumnavigate. It's something we allow to have happen. And I think that just, that's scary to people. Anything else in here? And just, I think for me, what I've been trying to go through a transformation here um, throughout this whole process of theology, you know, um, just trying to become a better me, um, to to be a better me to the world. And I think 
you know, just little key words here is that, that we have to die, mm -hmm. you know, just our, our own wants and, and, uh, and how impossible it is to do this without Christ. Right. It is, it's totally impossible. If we were to die ourselves, we would get morbid and depressed. And how many people do you know who are trying to do that kind of dying yeah. that just make, give Christianity a terrible, terrible reputation? Yeah, you get an anger issue, and yeah. you start treating other people, mistreating people, all right. because you feel that death inside of you, and you can't, yeah. But really, the goal here is not death. It's the resurrection okay. of Jesus. You see, Paul's using Jesus' death and resurrection as a metaphor for getting us to from death into life. Death isn't yeah. where we stop. It's that resurrection that is so important. Yeah. And it is a short period that, that he's It should be. To, yeah. It should be. It, but we, we drag it woe out. To us. <laughs> woe to us if it is. We like to hire the mourners. And you know, to me, <laughs> to me when, when I met... And considering how legalistic I was, I consider this a miracle, totally. But when I met the love of God and really understood that I could trust Him, that death was just like that. And then the resurrection. Yeah. It was so brief. And it was so joyful. It was such a joyful dying <laughs> and, and coming into that life. I think it, it can, I think once, once we, we have um, uh, somebody that can motivate us and, and show us the right way to do things, you know, it can be very liberating, right? Oh, you mean everything that I hate about myself can just yeah. be gone yeah. with Christ? It's, it's a mean, totally... It's a great message to preach. You know, and I think the reason it was easier for me is I was only 14. <laughs> you know, I hadn't, I, I hadn't, I was still a, pla a plastic yeah. Had, had that elasticity, and I wasn't brittle <laughs> yeah. uh, yet, and uh, consequently, I'm not as understanding. I think of older adults who are in the legal system and and really tied to it. Um, and by that point, you actually have a lot that you think you're going to lose if you give up that model. Right. You have the whole life behind you of this. Where I, I was young and malleable, and and could could change so much easier. All right, um, our time is up. We might revisit these verses next time before moving. Thank you all. Thank you, Jane. So let's have prayer. Gracious God, we thank you that you have given us, Paul, to open our eyes and to think in new ways and to be to find in him the, the paradigm for transformation and change. We know that we are not capable of doing this ourselves. So we submit to you for that revitalization and that, that renewal that we so much need. Even once we've been renewed, we need it again and again. We thank you for working this within our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.